Hi, everyone. Welcome to the April 15th, 2022 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, this was a fun one to uh, watch all the news come in last weekend. Last weekend, the, the state Republican Assembly was dominated by election conspiracies, creating a two-way race for the Republican U.S. Senate nomination between State Representative Ron Hanks and businessman Joe O'Day. Meanwhile, Tina Peters was officially nominated to a three-person slate for Secretary of State, receiving over 60% of the votes of everyone assembled. Petty, just when you thought we couldn't get uh, an even better occasion to talk about at this table, here comes a state Republican Party with something wrapped up with a nice little bow. I don't even know where to begin in this one, so uh, you let me know where you want to start with what we saw on Saturday. Well, first, I think we need to put all our opinions on paper, <laughs> as they demanded at the Colorado Republican <laughs> Party. So all the votes were supposed to be on paper because they didn't trust poor Christy Burton Brown uh, with doing a fair election. And as she pointed out, they would be there for the next several months, I think, if they did it that way, and they only had the room until midnight. Unfortunately, there weren't as many surprises as we'd hoped there would be because definitely the crazies ruled the day. I think the gubernatorial campaign is going to be fascinating. We didn't talk about that, but that Heidi Ganahl really got bested by Greg Lopez, the former mayor of Parker, who was once a Democrat, is now a Republican, has an interesting police record, and has a certain amount of charisma that seemed to really go over with the crowd. Uh, Tina Peters, always fun to talk about, that she is Definitely, I, th I don't know if she'll beat Pam Anderson, who partitioned her way on and is a reasonable, competent clerk, but it, that is going to be a wild primary. And I mean, it's just amazing that they went to everyone who is the polar opposite of the Democratic candidate. Ron Hanks is certainly going to be polarizing if he makes it, which he probably will. It was just crazy. And I wasn't even there and I could feel the vibes. <laughs> David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. State assemblies from both uh, parties always bring out the, 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 the furthest parts of the wings of the party. They are not the voice of the whole, a whole party. But the establishment part of the Republican Party seemed at this assembly to not only not be able to tamp down the message on its furthest right, but be mocked and derided for it. And while that does not represent the whole party, the kind of energy coming from that, I wonder what the grassroots energy can be for candidates who would have any shot whatsoever in a general election. What did you take away from Saturday's assembly? Well, it's, it's not a matter of, of right wing in the sense of you know, what are your views on taxes or spending or, you know, in, any other issue? Uh, look at the 2016 uh, State Republican Convention. There, the party sent 35 delegates to the Republican National Convention. Every one of them pledged to Ted Cruz, who was the last opponent standing against Trump. And the, the delegates there realized, I, th I think accurately, that, that Trump is, is a, a con man. Now, the party has changed. Probably half the delegates at, at the, the recent convention were first-timers. Trump has brought a lot of people into the party, which, which is overall usually good for party, the party. But so many of them are such willingly gullible dupes of his lies about the supposedly stolen 2020 election. And they're putting, and they are insisting that they want to nominate candidates in the general election who want to run 
uh, on believing this hoax, which is you might as well put a sign on your head and said, I'm, I'm a moron, I'll believe anything, uh, so you should definitely trust me with the power of government. On the Democratic side, I would bet that among the delegates there, there's probably about an equal percentage who believe the similar lies of Stacey Abrams and Hillary Clinton about their supposedly stolen elections. But the Democrats in Colorado, happily, are putting Stacey Abrams on the ballot or somebody who wants to run on how the election was stolen from Hillary Clinton by Russian hacking and all these equally idiotic conspiracy theories which pervade both parties. The Democrats had the advantage of not actually having a real convention with human beings there to interact and express their point of view. They did it all online, which makes it very, very low energy, uh, but also makes it easier uh, for them to control the public output of what people see. Eric Sonnen, political analyst and also columnist for the Gazette newspapers and Carter Politics. I'm of the opinion, and it has at times been controversial, that Michael Bennett is the luckiest elected leader of my generation. And I thought of that wonderful movie, The Great Race, Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, and that scene in where everyone's throwing pies everywhere and everyone's becoming a mess. And here comes Tony Curtis in a white outfit walking through unscathed. And like, that is Michael Bennett's political career in one two-minute mo two movie scene. Because we, we saw, it, even if he gets Joe Day out of this campaign, Joe Day's got to spend the next couple months debating with someone who is running fully on the, the 2020 lie concept and then recover from that in time to hopefully defeat an incumbent. You were there. So I am very, very interested to get your input on what you saw and your take. Yes, I was there. Uh, as a friend told me the day before when I told him I was going to go down to the Springs for this event, said, why don't you just stick a sharp fork in your eye and save yourself the trouble? And that was probably good advice. I'm trying to think, Dominic, of what word to use to capture the day. Fiasco comes to mind. I think I'll go with cluster um, to describe uh, what I witnessed uh, there on a media pass that day. It really started, the craziness started the day before at the 4th Congressional District Assembly. Ken Buck, former party chair, longtime incumbent congressman, and no one accuses Ken of being anything other than a pretty true blue, true red conservative, um, you know, cruising to renomination without opposition. Somebody gets off the floor, does a nomination, gives a speech going after Buck for having the temerity to follow the Constitution and certify Joe Biden as the president. And this guy, Bob Lewis, who's a real unknown realtor from Elbert County, gets 62 percent of the vote. Yeah. Buck, you know, has enough to get on the ballot, but not all that comfortably enough. That just carried on to the next day. Patty used the word distrust. When the Christie Burton Browns of the world are distrusted as sufficiently conservative or sufficiently trustworthy or honorable or ethical to run an election, you know we've entered the crazy zone. Mm -hmm. And it was the crazy zone. I mean, it was, there were three names that were on everyone's lips that day. Ron Hanks, Tina Peters and some guy named Brandon. And that's, <laughs> what, that's who everyone uh, was cheering for. I don't think these people will ultimately be successful. I would think Pam Anderson's going to defeat Tina Peters. For my money, Tina Peters is more likely next January to be in a jail cell than she is to be in a Capitol office. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think uh, Joe O'Day will beat Ron Hanks for that nomination. Uh, and the track record of this assembly actually picking winners is not a great track record. But the real question is, why do we still have this process? It has gone from being, a, it was an antiquated process 20 years ago. Now it's no longer antiquated. It's absolutely poisonous. Mm -hmm. uh, it is self-defeating for Republicans. They nominate candidates who are just, they're, they're not within several time zones of being electable. Um, but that's who speaks to this party at the moment. That's who has their, um, who taps their heart. At least those five, 6,000 mm -hmm. people who are the most hardcore of the hardcore. Krista Kafer's with us, longtime columnist with Denver Post, uh, including a variety of other specialties you have, Krista. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, the, the assembly does not speak for the whole Republican Party. There are a lot of people and probably a lot of independent voters who will have nothing to vote on for the Democratic primary, so we probably will be voting in the Republican primary. So the, I guess what you can call mainstream establishment candidates have a fair shot, but they'll be spending a whole lot of time, like Heidi Ganahl, answering questions about something that isn't crime, inflation, cost of living, all the things they want to be talking about, but instead, you know, asking about what they think about an election that happened two years ago. Does this assembly and what, we came, what came of it Will it have lasting effects on those Republican candidates moving forward? So my first thought at the end of that day was dumpster fire, right? <laughs> and what's good about a dumpster fire? It's contained, right? So you take the most, ex the, the, these most conservative, most active Republicans in the state, bring them into one place, and yet Ron Hanks, total nut job, he gets, what, 39%, mm -hmm. right? So th I think that's a good sense of, that, yeah, out of all the most conservative and most active, 39% are stupid enough to vote for this candidate. That is actually, a, that's a dumpster fire, but it's contained, right? It also says that 60% are probably okay. Think about the paper ballot, the paper ballot vote. Yeah, we have to have paper ballots. We have to be here all night. Let's count the ballots. It got shut down, right? There were enough sensible, smart people to say, no, we're not doing paper ballots. Let's do this. Uh, so yeah, some of the nut jobs did end up on, um, on the official ballot for the primary. But they were not supported by a pure majority, but by a sizable minority. And so then you look at the Republican Party in its totality, including mainstream Republicans, establishment Republicans, Republicans like myself that, you know, I got better things to do than go to one of those <laughs> crazy crackpot assemblies. Um, you know, together we are, it's a much bigger party full of lots of normal people. And at the end of the day, the O'Days are going to win, the Ganals are going to win. Ron Hanks is going to go back to the rock that he sleeps under, and he'll you know, represent his crazy district, or at least a sizable minority of people in his crazy district that are still reading conspiracy theories. And you know, the thing about conspiracy theories, though, I really think you have to work chubacabra in there somewhere. And so for all of you out there that are listening that really believe in the stolen, the stolen election conspiracy theory, you've got to spice it up. After mm. two years, a little chupacabra. It's important. And that would bring some sort of international flavor to it. I like that a lot because then it's like yeah. an international conspiracy. And the way I've always thought about conspiracy theories too is to believe them, you have to believe that you are worthy to be conspired against. And that takes an <laughs> awful lot of ego to believe that. Let us move on. Conversations around how to best address the fentanyl crisis continue. This, this week, the House Judiciary Committee voted to approve a bill that would classify possession of over one gram of fentanyl as a felony. People possessing less than a gram would face misdemeanor charges and penalties that increase with each offense. 
David, I know we're still far away from the final bill being approved, but from what we've seen so far, what do you think of at least the evolution of the conversation of capital? It's a totally idiotic waste of time conversation other than the money they're providing for treatment and mental health. You know, the, the, we're getting the, uh, the latest things is, is A, to uh, change the, the felony level from one gram to four grams. But of course, nobody you ever arrest other than somebody who's running a, a importing fentanyl, pure fentanyl from China, um, actually has four grams of, of real fentanyl. It's most commonly an adulterant on other drugs that people are trying to buy, and they don't want the fentanyl. And so the, the way the thing goes, well, if you have a mole detectable molecule of fentanyl on three grams of something else, they want to they make that a felony if you either knew that there was fentanyl there or reasonably should have known. And how are you reasonably supposed to know what your drugs are adulterated with, you know, other than if you run a, happen to have your own chemistry lab and you can go back and, and test the pills you bought at Union Station before you take them. And they're making sure that the people who do get imprisoned for this felony will be able to vote. Um, that, I don't think those people are actually responsible citizens who should be voting. Um, but then the line is, we're going to get this poison off our street. Folks, we've been going through this for over a century since the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1911, and they cracked down on opiates and coca. And then we, before that, we had alcohol. We had alcohol prohibition in this state. It failed. Then in the 30s, there was marijuana prohibition was put in, and finally the voters got rid of that. You, you have opium. That gets replaced by heroin. Heroin gets replaced by fentanyl. And there's other stuff that's just around the corner also being made for legitimate medical uses. Uh, as, as painkillers in, in Chinese labs, among elsewhere, and the Chinese government, for whatever they tell you, oh, we're cracking down on illegal exports. Uh, the, the money flows to where it's going to go. The whole drug war is a century of failure, and until people acknowledge that, uh, doing the same stuff over and over and trying to tweak it is, uh, is a waste of everyone's time. Eric, when I look at this, not I mean, I don't get into a lot of the details of one gram, four grams, things like that. It seems like it's becoming a political litmus test, that if you're truly conservative, it's lock everybody up if you can get a whiff of it. And if like, well, if you're, you're progressive, well, there's a little wiggle room there. I don't know if that's how it's turning out or if it's just kind of what the press is right now. What are you taking away from the political discussion around this issue? What I'm taking away from the political discussion, I think your analysis is largely right on, Dominic, is that it's one more issue that the Democrats are on the wrong side of in terms of public opinion. David's uh, point notwithstanding about the war on drugs um, from a conceptual uh, point of view, crime is... Crime is increasing these days. We're all living with it. Uh, I witnessed it up close and personal this week, but that's a separate story. Uh, and the public frustration is immense. Uh, the fentanyl crisis, it brings to mind one of my all-time favorite TV series, Breaking Bad. And all of a sudden, that stuff looks tame um, compared to what we have on the streets now. There is a misnomer out there that our jails are full of people who are in there only for minor levels of possession. Most of the people in our jails on drug crimes, not who got plea bargained out, but who are actually doing hard time, are there for dealing. And I don't think anyone really disputes that they ought to be there for dealing. The real key to felonizing or re-felonizing this 
is not to necessarily throw more people in jail, but to give prosecutors leverage to get them into treatment programs. And if you do not have the felony charge, prosecutors lose a lot of leverage. You know, if you're looking at nine months, a year, three years in jail, all of a sudden a treatment program as an alternative looks pretty good. But if you're just looking at a misdemeanor charge versus going in a treatment program, you say, I'll just take the misdemeanor and I'm back on the streets in a week anyway. So I think the leverage issue is what uh, cops and prosecutors are talking about, and it's what's being lost in this discussion. Chris, what do you think? I mean, uh, drugs are like a, a homeless problem. You can't wave a magic wand of one policy and solve it. But this is certainly bringing up conversations about at least steps we can do in the right direction. Um, it, it, is what we're seeing at the Capitol going at least in a more productive direction? I think it's a little more productive. And it's not so that I'm not sympathetic to the libertarian view, which is, you know, we need to basically decriminalize drugs because it's a, you know, it's a personal choice. Why put people in jail? Why waste police officers' time? I'm sympathetic to the harm reduction um, argument, which is people just need to get help, right? Uh, and we shouldn't put people in jail. We should put them into treatment. That, that said, though, at the end of the day, we lowered the offenses for fentanyl possession, and then deaths went up significantly. So there is a connection there. And when something is illegal, people are less likely to do it, less likely to, to deal with it, and it gives prosecutors and officers a chance, a, a better opportunity to get to these dealers. Um, I think about the young people who were not, you know, regular users who just stupidly took the wrong pill. And you know what? 35 years ago, that could have been me, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who had eh, smoked a little pot, and somebody if somebody had said to me, oh, this is just like Percocet, it's like what you took when you got your wisdom teeth out, mm -hmm. it'll just relax you, you'll have a mellow night tonight, I would have died. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening, is that because people have it, they give it, they doctor other drugs with it, and people die. It has to be illegal, and there has to be penalties. This isn't a situation where people are going to say, oh, you know what, I think I have a problem. I'm going to get into some drug treatment. If we look at Oregon's experimentation with decriminalization and the fact that people are given the opportunity to, to get help, 1% have sought help under that law, right? We, I, there is a place where we have to, at a point we have to lock people up. Mm -hmm. This substance kills and with low, a low offense, it's going to kill more people. Patty, the focus on this from the municipal level is only going to increase. The, the city officials are looking to the state to change something, make it a little bit easier. What do you think we're going to see moving forward? Well, we're going to see a big fight still in the legislature. I think they, like we, agree treatment is best if you can get people into treatment, and drug dealers should be in jail. And there, that leaves a whole lot of room that they can fight over over the next few weeks. But what we're also going to see is the law of unintended, unintended consequences, which came from the 2019 law that reduced the levels. We're going to see it used in campaigns. So when you think mm -hmm. if Leslie Herod runs for mayor, as has been rumored, she was very involved in the 2019 case. And people are mad that that lowered the level for fentanyl, unintended consequences. We're going to see it come up in Brittany Peterson's race for Ed Perlmutter's chair. People are mad that fentanyl has led to these deaths, and 2019 played a role, that legislation. So we are not done talking about it, even once something comes out of the legislature. This week, the University of Colorado named former lawmaker and regent Todd Solomon the sole candidate for university president. Solomon has been serving as interim prior to the announcement. The decision is sparking debate, as some claim the decision process was rigged and lacked transparency. 
Eric, I'm getting a vague recollection that we've been here before. Uh, The (laughs) finalists exist. They were fantastic. Just trust us. And here's our one person. Uh, they have the right to do that, but as the, st- the the largest education system in the state, was it the right move? Well, I think some people never learn. You have now have a board of regents led by Democrats and controlled by Democrats instead of the one that picked Mark Kennedy, the previous president that was president that was controlled by Republicans. But in terms of the process they employed, it looked mighty similar. There's a common theme on this show. Patty premiered it. You know, it's distrust. It's distrust of Christy Burton Brown. It's distrust of any election. It's distrust of distrust of any counting device, clickers or whatever. And in here, it's distrust of this process. I happen to think Todd Solomon is a very talented guy. It shows that there is life after the legislature. His challenge is going to be to step up And I think he's done it in the interim capacity from being a budget guy, a finance guy, a numbers guy, to being a system leader and advocate for CU. But um, he has already somewhat stepped up to that challenge and now we'll have the opportunity to fully do so. But I, I tend not to be a fan of these single finalists which is the norm now, whether you're a university president or uh, the, the, the candidate for a school superintendency or what have you, to, you know, Douglas County, to their credit, I mean, they, Lord knows they messed a lot up in their process, but at least they went public with two finalists. The norm now is to just have one finalist, and it just breeds distrust, and it reeks of secrecy. Krista, your thoughts on the process and the finalist? So you know what, I, I get the, the process, right? I understand that you shouldn't do it this way because if you put it out in the open, you have multiple candidates, it looks like you, you trust the people to weigh in. On the other hand, it gives your opponents a chance to just pick at every little thing about your candidates. So at the end of the day, you hate everyone, right? And nobody likes the candidates. You're going to end up with an unpopular choice no matter what you do. So I understand why they would put forth a single candidate. Um, I do think he needs to have his head checked, though, because why in the world would you want that job? Look at what they did to Kennedy, right? Um, so they, you know, Benson and Hanks did a great job. Kennedy did a decent job, but you've got a far-left contingent professors and others that will um, that will basically kill your candidate over time uh, by a thousand cuts. So, yeah, maybe a, maybe a doctor's visit is the, <laughs> the way to go for this guy. Patty, your thoughts on the process, the finalist, and if, and if uh, Sol- Mr. Solomon needs uh, our condolences? While Mark Kennedy went into that job, he was wearing a kick-me sign on the back. I mean, he came in with plenty of baggage and reasons to be kicked, including uh, favoritism with some of his employees at his previous university job. Solomon, at least, we have more of a record both at the, in the legislature and at CU. But I agree with some of the Latino activists who are very concerned that someone like Joe Garcia, who was great lieutenant governor, is a really good educator, uh, knows systems, personable, could really be an interesting leader there, did seem to get short shrift. We really don't know, of course, because it wasn't transparent. But this is another thing. When you talk about baggage, Heidi Ganahl, one of the few people, a regent who's a Republican, she might have more to answer for if she does wind up being the gubernatorial candidate. David, wrap it up for us. Todd Solomon was elected as a state representative from Boulder and was soon put on and uh, served four years on the Joint Budget Committee, which is a place you get put on because your colleagues think you were smart, diligent, 
intelligent, and good at math. Uh, he then served as uh, head of Governor Ritter's uh, budget office, and then at CU was the chief financial officer, and he's been the acting in interim president at CU since July of 2021. Also, as the Boulder Daily Camera said when a, the contested primary in his first state representative race, we never find anything offensive about him because his opinions are such smooth, middle-of-the-road democratic ones. It would be like, you know, cutting, trying to cut your, your uh, tongue on the, the smooth edge of a rounded spoon. So he fits into the CU culture very well, where a lot of the faculty and students uh, are terrified of intellectual diversity. Um, so I would say, all in all, he's a, he's a, a very solid choice uh, from the region's point of view. Well, it is time for our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. We've been chatty this week, so we'll need to keep it peppy and, and quick. Patty, as always, start us off. Returning to CU, where Bruce Benson was a good president, he should take his name off the chair that was recently occupied by John Eastman, <clears throat> whose involvement in the January 6th insurrection gets bigger and bigger. David. El Paso County Republican Chair Vicki Tonkins, who has been involved for years in constant cheating on behalf of her favorite candidates. And uh, uh, this week, a court ruled uh, that the El Paso County Assembly is going to have to have a do-over on the uh, nomination for a state representative seat because uh, she cheated again on that by uh, putting in at least one illegal delegate uh, to, vote, uh, to vote her way. Eric. Right on to Patty's and David's. Uh, as much as we poke fun and criticize the Republican assembly, on the Democratic side, they made quick work of an assembly, and obviously it was all just renominations, but they did it over Zoom. I'm okay with hybrid models, but maybe the Democrats should get the memo and come out from the Zoom screen, and uh, you know, I think we can start meeting in person again these days. Krista. I'm going to give it to former Douglas County Superintendent Corey Wise, who's just lodged a web suit alleging discrimination. It's like, dude, you're, you're a middle-aged white guy, right? And he, he basically got fired when the, you know, the board changed out. The board changed because the voters didn't like the policies. They didn't like the masking. And they didn't like uh, the critical race theory-backed stuff. And so he got fired. And now he's like, oh, I've been discriminated against. Dude, you're a white guy. Knock it off. <laughs> Time to say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty. DU Hockey, congratulations on the national win. My mother and I got caught driving through the celebration, which was a blast. Here, here, David. My mother, Dolores Copel, who's in the studio today, and not only did she have a distinguished career helping my dad, Jerry, do lots of things, she also became one of the best bankruptcy lawyers in the state of Colorado. She's one of the first women lawyers in the state of Colorado. And in many, many things, uh, she showed that when people tell you you can't because you're a woman or you're a whatever, uh, you can go ahead and do it anyway. Two of our special guests today, Mrs. Calhoun and Mrs. Copel here. It's very good to have you here. Eric. Yes, welcome to both of them. It's great to see them. Uh, it's a special time of year. Uh, our Muslim friends are in the middle of Ramadan. Happy Easter to all our Christian friends. Hag Sameah. Uh, happy Passover to our Jewish friends. Uh, enjoyed the time of year. Krista. I was supposed to say, that was lovely. Um, <laughs> it was. I, I'm going to give it to Ukraine. Um, they blew up that chip, and that was really impressive. Um, I, you know, I love an underdog, and in this case, uh, when you're under the thumb of a horrible dictator who wants to take over your country, kudos. Keep it up. You're here.
And I want to end tonight with a, on a personal note. They say all good things must come to an end, and so must my time here at PBS 12. Uh, I'm into my last few weeks here at the station. My last day and my last show will be on May 13th. Now, first of all, I want to make sure everyone knows that Colorado Winstyle will go on. Uh, we've been here for 30 seasons. I'd like to think that it'll be here for 30 more. So uh, just a changeover in this seat will not uh, change anything for the program. And since I'm grateful to have a few more weeks here at the station and on this show, uh, you'll see some of our friends from the show's past join us in the panel uh, as I finish up these next few weeks. So I just wanted everyone on the same page. I'm excited about what comes next in my next chapter. I don't know what that is yet, but I'm excited for it. I'm also excited for the future of the station. It's going to be a good one and one that I will be excited to watch. So uh, don't worry. We have a few weeks together uh, from now on, but I want everyone to be on the same page with me so you knew all the different faces they'll see in the next couple of weeks. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic DiZutti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.